From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode is Cornell University alum and professor of soil science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Doug Soldat. Doug and I have been friends for many years, and many listeners may recognize us from previous episodes of this fine podcast and our eight-year run teaching a GCSA seminar. It used to have some fancy title about integrated bentgrass and annual bluegrass management. What Doug and I used to call it was what Doug and Frank think this year's seminar. Doug's nutrient management research at UW-Madison is among the most progressive in the nation. It has drawn important attention to practical turfgrass nutrition, and when it comes to supplying those nutrients, you want simple, no-nonsense solutions, and that's where the plant food company comes in. The professionals at the plant food company strive to provide the latest technology at affordable prices and backs them with their commitment to servicing the industry and golf course superintendents. They've the research to back up their claims and the products for all your nutrient management needs. Learn more at plantfoodcompany.com. Doug, welcome back. So great to chat with you. You know, we used to get this annually with the What Doug and Frank Think This Year seminar that we used to teach (laughs) at the GCSAA, right? So let me get right to it. I really want to start with something that you've been working on for a really long time, and I'm not sure where it's at with you right now. Soil chemical issues, soil nutrient management for turf. You know, the last I checked in, you'd had it pretty dialed in about your potassium work that you were doing. Certainly the phosphorus work had been dialed in. Where are you at now with any of your soil nutrient management research projects? So I think dialed in is hard. I think what we're starting to do is we're starting to make progress in getting people to realize a couple things. The first is that the soil tests that most people have grossly overestimate the amount of nutrients and the amount of fertilizer you need. And I think, you know, after 15 years of beating the drum, we're starting to make some progress with that, where that's becoming, instead of like a fringe idea, it's starting to become more accepted. It's still a long way to go. The, the other thing that I like to talk about a lot is, man, nutrient deficiencies are nothing to be scared of in the first place. So go ahead and push those limits and run into a nutrient deficiency now and again. You'll be surprised at how minor they are and how easy they are to correct. You know, I was thinking, I've only seen at my research station three nutrient deficiencies, nitrogen, which we manage every day, mm-hmm. phosphorus, and manganese. And I'm trying to find the other ones. So they're hard to find. Once you find them, they're easy to correct. So that's kind of where I'm at. So the manganese one is interesting. We've chatted about that in the past. That's a very bizarre sort of nutrient to be deficient to, but one certainly for bentgrass and root pathogens in bentgrass that has unique properties. I'm sort of curious because a while back, there was this discussion we were having between the value of tissue testing, and certainly that's gotten popular among golf course superintendents. There's companies that will do that for you and prescribe your nutrient management program from that. And then there's, of course, the more widespread acceptance of the use of MLSN as a starting point anyway. Carl Guillard's doing some work here in Connecticut looking at a Connecticut MLSN, one that might be more refined for Connecticut soils, as he sees it. So I'm wondering where you're at with tissue testing and MLSN. So MLSN, what a brilliant concept that is, and all credit to Larry and Micah for bringing that to the mainstream. But you know, where I learned a version of MLSN from was my undergrad advisor, Wayne Cousseau, who showed me 300 soil tests from all over Wisconsin 
and the soil potassium ranged from basically zero to like 300. And then the turf quality was fine on all of those. So he would say, like, Doug, look at this. Where should we identify low, medium, and high? These are all good performing samples. They range the entire gamut of soil K. And, I, you know, I'd try to come up with some answer to sound smart. And he's like, oh, you just draw a line somewhere here around 50 because 50 is a round number. <laughs> and it's near, it's kind of, you know, so he picked a round number near what's close to like the bottom 10% of good performing turf, which is, of course, with MLSN, they use the bottom 10% of their sample size. And Dr. Cousseau was just kind of drawing a line at a round number. You know, I think that's the state. And that when I talk about soil testing, that's the curtain that you pull back on the wizard is that those numbers are just, they're statistically identified. doesn't mean that if you're below a threshold on a soil test that you actually have a problem. And so, yeah, it makes sense for Connecticut to go and take their database and do their own version. Do I expect them to see anything dramatically different? No. Does it make sense to go through that operation? Yeah. And so for Wisconsin, we did that. The MLSN for Malik 3 is 21, I believe, right now, and the Wayne so methods 25. So basically <laughs> arrived at the same thing, but Wayne thought 25 was a rounder number than 21. So yeah, I think it's fine. The message I try to get out to people is like, your goal shouldn't be a chase a number, 21, 25, whatever the Connecticut thing comes up with. If you got purple turf, you don't want that. You put phosphorus down and it turns green again. And then you take a soil sample and you figure out, hey, my turf turns purple at seven parts per million. So then anything getting close to seven, you know, hey, it's time to touch up the phosphorus again. Okay. I couldn't agree with you more. I always think about it as a starting place. We probably could go lower. I mean, because it was limited by where everybody sent the data in from. Larry and I chatted about this in a recent episode. So I got you there. What I'm wondering is, number one, would you even bother soil testing, thinking that, well, I'll just wait till I think I see something that might be growth limiting or something that looks like a nutrient deficiency? Is that the way to go or should I keep Maybe it's time for me to tissue test. Maybe soil tests are not good, and I do need more things than the soil test might tell me I need. Yeah, I think for something like potassium. So where I'm at with potassium is the deficiency story doesn't make any sense for potassium like it does with phosphorus because potassium plays a role, as the Rutgers work showed us, with cold stress with annual bluegrass. And as your work showed, it influences the susceptibility to snow mold. And, you know, there's been people that found evidence for traffic tolerance. So with something like that, I think tissue testing does make more sense than soil testing. I can already see the email I'm going to get from Michael Woods if he listens to this. <laughs> because I think where I see the value in that is that gives me a tissue level that I associate with some type of stress response. Like the soil numbers could be all over the place, but if I know that I get anthracnose when the tissue level is below 2%, that gives me some sort of idea to know where my potassium nutrition is with response to that particular stress. So again, I'm not chasing a number, but it gives me an idea of when a plant might be susceptible to stress at a particular tissue level. But I don't love the idea of chasing any numbers unless you know exactly, like we chase soil moisture numbers every day. You know, you have a target in the morning, you stick your probe in, you hand water if needed, right? So the concept there is sort of the same for tissue, but we don't have that type of high enough resolution data on all the tissue levels and all the stresses that mm -hmm. might be optimized at various levels. So it's like proceed with caution. I guess the way I really talk about nutrition is you should 99% of your thoughts on nutrition should be about nitrogen. And I feel like we spend too much time talking about these other nutrients that probably don't make much of a difference. 
difference in your turf health. Well, you anticipated my question. I was going to ask you, when we started the Beth Page Project, one of our treatments was nothing but nitrogen except for a little bit of iron back at the turn of the century. And I remember going at that for a really long time. And as you said, we just weren't seeing any consequences of just managing for nitrogen, knowing that we keep it in a deficient status. So with that as a backdrop, nitrogen and keeping it in deficient status, it seems to me one of the few things that you're going to apply it for is maybe keeping up with wear stress. I think we've had this conversation before. Are we getting better at understanding the amount of N we may need to apply as the traffic stress starts to stress out the plants? Yeah, that's the beauty of the clipping volume collection is because now we don't have to look at a tissue level or we don't have to look at how many pounds per thousand we've put out and compare that. I think turf grass is about growing grass at the right rate. And so if you can identify what the right rate is for whatever situation you're in, and if you're going to have more traffic stress when you're below that amount, right? So then what do you do to get more growth? You add nitrogen. You could be a Above that target, what do you do then? You back off on nitrogen and you throw the PGRs in the tank. So I think the thing that's going to help guide decision-making on golf courses is going to be widespread adoption of measuring growth. Okay, I'm with you. How do I do it on my fairways? How do I do it on large areas? Listen, neither you nor I are going to worry about the three acres on the putting surfaces. Certainly, we've got a long way to go to convincing people you can use variable end rates across a putting surface, but I think we will get there at some point. I'm more curious about the large-scale nutrient applications, Doug, because, you know, our work identified with Michael and Carl, you know, people got more money, they're going to have higher expectations, and they're going to use more products, and that's going to make it harder to follow some BMPs. How do we help guys adopt larger-scale approaches to managing nitrogen based on growth? So I don't know that growth makes the most sense for fairways. I could come back in a few years and eat those words. (laughs) Certainly, it is going to be more of a pain in the butt to measure. You can figure out a way pretty easily to measure clippings on fairways that doesn't take all day. But I think the work that Bill Kreuzer and his student Michael Carlson did recently in Nebraska, where you got sensors on mowers. And so it's Mm -hmm. the same thing, like these NDVI, NDRE sensors on lower priority turf areas could probably be used to guide fertilizations. It's funny, their project, when I talked to him, I said, oh, that's really cool work. And he's like, oh, no, it's terrible because the model we built said we never needed to apply nitrogen on our fairways. So we didn't have any comparisons to make. But I think that's the goal. Is like we look at what the color is. We can use a sensor to tell that. You can mount a sensor on a mower, collect data every single time you mow fairways. And if you drop below a threshold value, it can nudge you to put some nitrogen in the tank. And if you're above that value, don't do it, right? So, of course, those things can all be user calibrated. But again, it's a piece of data that nudges somebody in the the right direction for keeping nutrient applications on a reality-based application rather than a calendar-based or an experience-based method. Since you brought up the use of data, collecting data to make some predictions that you can calibrate, you had a graduate student, Chiyu, who just did some work looking at just that, trying to predict growth based on environmental conditions. And before we came online today, you told me she's got a position down in Florida. Big shout out to Chiyu. Congratulations on advancing out of the PhD with Doug. So hopefully she'll listen and hear the shout out. But the broader question is, Doug, are we going to get smarter at this? Are there ways that 
we collectively could get smarter about predicting growth that doesn't require even a sensor. Yeah, I think you're right. I just listened to the show you did with Larry at Pace, and one of the comments in there was like, there's nothing wrong with data. It's just that we're not good enough at building the tools to make using data easy. So the people that are using data have to put in more work than they should, and you got a big group of people that don't use data because they don't have time. It's too hard to figure out. That's right. That was a very astute comment from Larry. A lot of people have said that to me, echoed that back. That Larry's comment about, you know, Frank, we give people a hard time for not adopting, but we're not so good at making it easy for them uh, oh, yeah. either. You, yeah, And so I'm glad to see us all come clean on that. This is good because, you know, we do pound the industry, particularly the older guys, the generational guys that we like to say, oh, you know, come on, old guy. But we got to make it easier. Is that where we're heading? Yeah, I think so. Like the extension is changing. You and I would go around and give talks and show our data and say, do this, not that, or whatever. But at the end of the day, it might be six months before that person leaves that seminar and then it is faced with a decision like that. And that memory or that note is long gone. And so what we need to get better at is building software that not only helps people use data, actually makes their life easier to use that data. And so we're guilty of this. You talked about she used great work. She's using machine learning to predict bank grass growth, and we can do it ridiculously accurately. But machine learning's hard, and right now you basically need to understand how to code to use that model. So the next step, and something that we're working on actively, is hiring computer science people to take that data and then automate it so it downloads your weather data and your location, and then you, know, you might have to enter a few simple questions about what you're doing, and then it can predict your grass growth for like whatever the weather forecast is to 14 days out. So instead of now looking back and saying, this is the growth that we've had, you can look forward and say, in the next 10 to 14 days, this is where I expect my growth to go. So I need to either add more nitrogen or take nitrogen out of the tank. And so I think that's the beauty of that work. But the missing piece is without the software development side, that work is basically useless. And so what you do, right, is you'd set a baseline for the nutritional program you think you might need for the year, right, from historical stuff. And then you'd have to find ways of collecting data across the golf course for microclimate stuff, right? I think the next part of it is, are there aspects of the golf course elevation-wise, microclimate-wise, soil-wise that we could adapt that model to just say, yeah, half X, one X, one and a half X of whatever resource you're you're considering. It seems to me that's got to be the first step. Looks like we're going to get better at that modeling and then being able to dial it in geospatially. Is that the plan? Yeah, we have to. The thing I don't have a good feel for is like, how long is it going to take for all this stuff to play out? We got GPS sprayers. They're going. Mm -hmm. We have sensors that can collect all this data. We can put weather stations and microclimates relatively inexpensively. What nobody's good at right now is integrating all of those things so that maybe you don't even have to tell the sprayer what to do, right? You just put nitrogen in the sprayer and you drive it and then it kicks it out. So it's not to say that we're trying to like take the superintendent's expertise out because the superintendent would have to make, like you said, would sit down at the computer and say, these are my targets. These are my goals. These are my baselines. Mm-hmm. And then the sprayer systems are talking to the sensors and the weather stations and putting out the nutrients, the fungicides, whatever, in the right spots at the right amounts and resulting in savings. You know, in some ways, I almost think that's a much more achievable goal, Doug, than trying to get water management dialed in. 
I know Michael Beckin, also a graduate student of yours, finishing up soon, looking forward to that, has been looking at water use as well as a lot of other resources. But at the agronomy meetings, the crop science meetings, he presented on this water survey that he did. Can you take a minute and just describe it for the listeners, what the question was and the way you approached it and what you guys sort of learned? Yeah, so with Michael's project, he's trying to take all the resources that golf courses use, so water, pesticides, fuel, fertilizers, and then compare them to what we think a budget should be, like what's a reasonable amount of water to use for a golf course in Wisconsin versus Arizona, right? And so then we could compare the resource use efficiency of individual golf courses or golf course managers, right? So we know the Arizona golf course is going to use more water, but maybe that water use was more efficient. Maybe it was more impressive than the water use in Wisconsin because of the baseline data. So what Michael's trying to do is for all those areas, and we'll talk about water, is create some type of baseline for each golf course in each climate that you can get a water efficiency score for. If you're one, that means you use exactly how much water we think a golf course should use for that area. If you're below one, it means you used less water than we thought you should use. That's good. And if you're above one, that means we think you used more water than you should have. And so the goal with that is I think that's how you motivate people. Maybe people don't know that they're using 20% more water than their neighbors or than what we think you should do. And then they try to figure it out. I strongly believe that golf course superintendents want to preserve and protect the environment for a lot of different reasons. But the environmental protection alone is a motivating factor. And if you don't know, it's hard to look for ways to improve. So seeing social norms or comparing, you know, what areas are using, like the GCSA has a lot of surveys around this. One of the things that stood out, and I don't want to call out my brothers and sisters managing grass in Florida, but there was a particular anomaly with what happened in Florida with the way his water data came out that I found really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about what that got attributed to? Yeah, that's still a bit of a mystery. So, you know, I just talked to him yesterday about it. The story is that for five different regions in the U.S., Pacific Northwest, Midwest, out by you in the Northeast, Texas, and then the fifth one was Florida. Florida was the only one that stood out as statistically using more water than we predicted. All the other regions were pretty close to what we expected they should use, hovering around one. But Florida was mostly above. And so we think that's probably an artifact of not understanding the rooting depth of the grasses or the extent of the irrigated area plays a big role in that. And then it could be that the water use is really higher in that region. So we don't know exactly with something he's still working on, we're thinking about, but that's the beauty of it. it. It shows us with real numbers that there might be a problem and that gives us something to try to address. So it sounds like just to wrap up this part of our conversation, Doug, before we really change gears and get down into the other kind of soil testing, we might be considering is you're really beginning to imagine a research world and environment for turf grass scientists that involve working with engineers and computer scientists and maybe not doing as much direct side-by-side field plot work but maybe more data science and analytics i know sometimes a lot of my colleagues might frown upon that but do you see that as a viable avenue for turfgrass science to be more focused on data science and analytics from data that's just out there and that we can maybe, let's say, crowdsource? Yeah, 100%. You know, I think 
The reason I got into this was because I wanted to help people do things more efficiently so they could make more money, have a lower environmental impact, make golf course as a sport more sustainable, more likely to survive, right? And I was surprised at how hard it is to get people. When you do side-by-side plot work, it's really cool. It's really fun, but it's hard to get large-scale adoption for it. And so what I'm learning now is that I think that the way to get people to do things differently or more science-based is through the use of software tools that make their job and their life easier. So it kind of kills two birds with one stone. It's something that they want to use, and then it's guiding them towards optimal management, which is, you know, shaving off a few percentage here and there and, and actually making a difference. All right. Listen, Doug, let me reintroduce you. You're Professor Doug Soldat at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll take a short little break, and we'll be right back with a conversation about organic matter. Nothing makes golf course conditioning better than firm, fast surfaces. Dryject sand injection services increases infiltration and allows for coarse sand particle injection that will lead to firmer golf courses by top dressing, aerating, and amending in one pass. Dryject services help make firm greens. Contact your local Dryject service representative or visit dryject.com. All right, Doug, so let's change gears a little bit and talk a little bit about this work that's going on now. I think a little bit behind the scenes, but I heard the USGA podcast, so it sounds like it's a little more public. Rock is leaking out little things to me every once in a while. Of course, he's amazed he was asked to be on the committee. So that's what we had to get over collectively in our friendship, that he got identified to work on this organic matter thing. But I want to talk more broadly about this question of testing for physical properties, things like organic matter, in your mind, to be absolutely essential. Whereas you felt completely opposite about chemical testing, I'm wondering, am I characterizing your position on physical testing more accurately, that you think it is an essential tool? So with nutrient testing, a lot of what happens if you put down potassium to the turf quality, not much. It's not that exciting, right? You're probably not going to see a benefit from it. You might sleep better at night. You might feel better about yourself. But in the end of the day, you didn't affect the golfer. You didn't affect the golf course. Not much happens. With organic matter, that's the thing that you're managing for the health of the green. It has huge implications. And it's also the thing that makes the golfers mad as hell, right? (laughs) So they want you to top dress and airify less, and you need to do it to keep your job. And so it does seem a little bit ridiculous that we haven't been measuring that surface organic matter carefully and then basing our management decisions around it. Okay, that's very interesting. Yeah, you're right. It's amazing it hasn't been a routine practice of testing like nutrient testing has been. And again, I used to argue with my old pal Rock about this. He was doing organic matter testing. And honestly, the thing I walked away from that was that we don't really have a standardized way of looking at this yet. And what I hear a drumbeat is, oh, I istric test. Okay, well, that's sort of a proprietary version of something. I'm not sure how I feel about that. But I think it's an undisturbed core test that we've been trying to do all along, but haven't been able to standardize. So where are we at with getting that test that will become more routine, more standardized? 
So the district test, there's nothing magic about it. You can go to their website and see the things that they do, and they provide sample reports. One of the cool things that they do is they chop up the soil, and you send an undisturbed core, and they'll chop it up into one-inch sections, and they'll measure the organic matter, among lots of other things, but they'll measure the organic matter in those one-inch sections. That's what we're trying to manage. So I agree. Part of the reason we don't do this physical testing or benchmarking is because, like you said, the data don't support it. There hasn't been a clear, consistent cutoff in what is the right amount of organic matter. But guess what? I always go to water because I think the way we measure and manage water is how we should be doing everything. So with water, I know five golf course superintendents in Wisconsin, some of them are shooting for single digits in the morning. Some of them are shooting for low 20s in the morning. That's because they have different soils and they have different expectations. They have different budgets and labor and all that stuff. So that's going to apply to organic matter too. They're going to be golf courses that are shooting for 3% organic matter in the top inch. There's going to be some that are shooting for 6 or 7%, and that's fine. But whatever that number is that the golf course manager wants to arrive at, it's going to help them choose their practices, how aggressive to be with top dressing and airification and solid tine and dry jacked and all that stuff, all those important expensive things that they do. It's going to be towards either decreasing organic matter to the target, allowing it to increase or maintaining it at some certain level. You can't figure that out until you start consistently sampling organic matter in the top inch or the next inch, or you want to talk centimeters, zero to two centimeters, two to four centimeters. So you just do the same thing at your course. You test over and over and over, and you track things, and you see how your cultivation influences those levels. Where the debate with Rock and I came about was the 4% number, that there was a number that Bob Caro reported in the Southeast that he consistently saw I think, associated with poor performing bentgrass systems in that. So very niche, right? Very small areas, very narrow regional things. So there was a number at one point, but I almost hear you saying something you argued against a minute ago. This does feel like a number that you think is worthy of quote unquote chasing. Well, yeah, we chase numbers for water, right? Mm -hmm. You agree with that? Yeah, 100%. So this is a case, like, I think chasing numbers for nutrients makes sense if you're always on the borderline of deficiency. What I see with nutrients is people are so far above the amount of P and K that their turf needs that they're chasing fake numbers. But if you know your turf turns purple at seven parts per million malic three, you should be chasing that number because you don't want to be below it because you're going to have purple grass, right? It's just that that's so rare and infrequent. So, yeah, I think if you know a threshold, you should absolutely chase it. And so the problem with organic matter, like you said, is we don't know what it is. It may be 4% for bent grass in Georgia. It might be 7% in northern Minnesota or it might vary even within a town. We, As humans are good observers, we can figure out when organic matter gets to this level, something bad happens. And then that we want to keep it at or below that level. So are you able to discuss what the end game is for the USGA committee you're on? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the end game is just when I say go soil sample your organic matter, that we're on the same page. Like, what diameter sample should I take? How many samples per green? How deep should I go? What are the depth increments that I should slice these things up into? Should the lab grind and sieve them or just throw them right in the oven? So when we talk about organic matter, everybody says, oh, yeah, that's fine. I test for organic matter. But there's like 30 decisions that go into that and influence the numbers greatly. And so that's what we're trying to figure out. So you got a USGA recommendation for building a putting green. You're going to have a USGA recommendation 
for sampling organic matter in sand putting greens. I think that's what the driving goal is, so that we all sample the same way, so we can get on the same page. Perfect. And so let's go into weeds a little bit on this. You guys, I'm assuming, are taking a bunch of samples. I'm a little bit interested in the variability of organic matter within a green And if high traffic areas indicate that they have lower organic matter levels, is there some indication that within putting surfaces, there are organic matter differences that are worthy of note? Yeah, and that's part of the project. And it's sad to say that I don't think there's anything published on greens that can give us that answer. Certainly, there's been people that have sampled organic matter from putting greens, but not related it to shade or traffic or something that might try to explain the variability in a single putting green. So that's what we're doing. We're going to look at variability across a single putting green. We're going to try to look at variability across the 18 holes of a golf course at you know five different locations across the U.S. And at the end of the day, we'll hopefully be able to better address some of these questions. And again, all in the goal of improving management. So segmenting it up into two, four, six, Doug, obviously the thing that's changing the game with that particular approach is thoughts of managing the verdure, right? The stuff at the top, the green matter that we used to remove, right? We've added that dimension to it. And I'm thinking about things like firmness and smoothness and That seems like a different approach to managing a surface when you're talking about the top two centimeters. How is that being discussed with you really smart guys around the table there? So that's another thing we're looking at is like currently the standard recommendation in the way that Rock did it in Nebraska is you cut that stuff off. And the new way of thinking is maybe we shouldn't cut it off because that's what gives the surface the resilience or the firmness or whatever. So maybe it can tell us something. So another project that we're doing at Wisconsin that's through the USGA but not part of the organic matter standardization is we're looking at the role of firmness. We're looking at different devices and sand top dressing frequencies and and timings and, and rates and all that and just how surface preparation affects that firmness. So I think those are good questions. And if there's a lot of good reason to think in theory that we know what the best way to do it is, but I think, you know, after we collect this mountain of data this summer, we're going to have some data to back up a recommendation that we're willing to stand behind. All right, listen, I'm going to get you out of here on a couple more questions. I really appreciate you taking the time. This is great. I feel like I could do this all day and ask one question after another, but I want to bring it back to something we've already talked about, and that is growth and how that potentially impacts organic matter here. So follow me here for a second. What's the possibility that when you have a heavily trafficked surface, rolled or foot traffic, or even a knob on a green that maybe doesn't grow as well, those plants then make decisions to invest energy in leaf material and not as much into maybe more lignaceous material that might persist and then become part of organic matter, Is that theoretically partially why we might see less organic matter in some of these heavily trafficked surfaces? Because then the last question is going to be about rolling, you know, intentionally trying to do this stuff. But let's start there. Is it possible growth and organic matter production under these traffic surfaces is intimately linked? I think it's all related. And let's do do this one more time. Let's go back to water. You know that you don't need to apply the same amount of water to all areas on a green. 
because some of them dry down faster and some places hold water. It's probably the same thing for nitrogen because of growth. So I think about the amount of nitrogen I need is linked to the amount of growth that I'm going to get. And then growth is organic matter. So every time a plant produces a pound of growth above ground, it probably produces 1.2 pounds of growth below ground, and that turns into organic matter. So yeah, what we're doing now is we're fertilizing greens all the same, but we're trafficking differently and we're changing the growth in different areas. And I think, you know, it's pretty hard to be able to fertilize more or less in in one green very accurately, but with GPS sprayers and better data, that's the goal is to give each plant, you know, we're talking like square foot basis here, an amount of nitrogen it needs to get the growth and organic matter production as equal as we can get it, just like we use soil moisture probes and hand watering to try to get moisture as equal as we can get it across that surface. I'm starting to see less organic matter where I roll. Why? Because of what you said, because of the growth. You're stressing out the plant. You're growing less grass there, right? So you grow less grass, you grow fewer roots, you get less organic matter. So what would you need to do? You would need to add more nitrogen to get that grass to grow more to hit a growth target. Well, this is the thing, Doug. This is what I'm trying to get at. We'll wrap it up on this, pal, because we're down the wormhole now. (laughs) You know, my sense is that if I'm putting on a set amount of nitrogen across that green or a fairway, I'm, again, thinking of large-scale areas where organic matter management gets harder, right? You know, we want firm fairways. I wonder about organic matter management on large areas because that takes even more energy to do. So I certainly want better measurement in those areas. And if I want a good-looking turf but not as much growth, why do I want much growth if it's not to keep up with traffic? All I got to do is mow it. So I'm figuring the plant's stressed, you're saying, is just not producing as much biomass. When you did your traffic research, what you found high traffic and low end produce the same amount of growth. Am I correct? Uh, It gets confusing to talk about it. But yeah, basically, if we put a bunch of traffic down, we would have to put down four-tenths of a pound of nitrogen to get that growth level to be the same as the non-fertilized area that we didn't traffic. And therein lies the answer to our organic matter question. It's just growing less. I think that's the simplest way to think about it. Now, like you said, there could be biochemical changes where the plant's producing more or less lignin, depending on how, you know, its stress level. That probably comes in at a second level. But I think the easiest way to think about it is you grow less grass, you're going to have less organic matter. And what we're probably doing now is we're fertilizing too aggressively, and then we have to cultivate more aggressively. And I'm saying we is like the royal we here. And so better measurement of organic matter, better measurement of clippings and growth and thresholds will allow us to get those numbers as close to optimum as we can get. With much fewer disruptive energy-intensive practices, right? In my mind, that's the end game. These practices are enormously disruptive to play and burn a lot of fuel and energy and respiration from the soil every time we poke holes and do it. So I'd like us to be really sure we need to do it. And the easiest way for me to be sure we need to do it is to not create a situation where I have to do it. That's basically what you said. We intensively grow, and so we intensively cultivate. Right, and I think for me that's the thing that gets me most excited about this is to be able to tell a golf course, 
I think you can skip an event or two, right? Because they're going to be happy about that. The golfers are going to be happy about it. And if it's better for the system, like it's just one of those like stories that don't happen that often when everybody wins. You don't think the superintendents that you say that to will start twitching when you tell them they can't airify? You don't think they'll start twitching? <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. I told them they need to put down too much potassium and they don't like that answer for some reason. Thanks for the time, Doug. It's so great to chat with you. Really appreciate you doing it, especially on short notice. Great to hear your voice. Best to Sarah and the boys. Yeah, thank you so much, Frank. This is always fun. Thanks a lot. Big thanks to my guest today, Doug Soldat. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The Plant Food Company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability for 40 years. And Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management John Kiger, graphic design Nicole Rossi, theme music Tucker Rossi, and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.